You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue our teaching series on the book of Revelation. Good morning, everybody. I was a little bit weak. I know it's sort of early still. Good morning, everybody. There we go. There we go. Hey, I am uh, going to tell you about something coming up, um, really cool event that we've got coming up. You heard in the video announcements that uh, October 8th, and a couple weeks ago I kind of said save the dates, October 8th is a Sunday, and that Sunday our whole church is getting together in Moscow as one big family to celebrate 10 years on the Palouse. So pretty cool, 10 years, I mean, think about it. Um, It's a big milestone for a a baby church coming down here to try something crazy and new and really reach people for Jesus. So it'll be a great celebration. But for us here in Pullman, they call this campus home, that this is our church. We're going to get together on the 7th, which is Saturday night. You're going to be getting invitations in the mail and Facebook, and you're going to get them in all these different uh, stuff that I'm terrible at, Twitters and Instagrams and all those. You're going to see this a whole bunch of different ways. So What's important and what you need to know is that if you call this church home, if this is where you fellowship, if you're a part of this church, we need you, not want you, we need you to be a part of this deal on Saturday night the 7th. We're going to be down at the WSU Visitor Center. We're going to feed you a great dinner. You're going to get to know my wife and I a little bit better, which is, which is nice, but that's not what it's about. What it's really about is for us as a church here in Pullman to hear about vision and direction for this church and this town and this community. And we're going to give you some really tangible next step opportunities for you to be a part of us accomplishing that vision. And so if, uh, if this is home... Please, please, please be at that. There's going to be RSVP stuff. We're working on figuring out child care so we don't make that an obstacle for anybody to be there and all that stuff. So it's going to be a cool deal. So got it, got it. You're going to hear more about it, but it's important. So I'm going to kind of recap a little bit of where we've been in Revelation. While I'm doing that, if we've got a couple of people that are going to help read some scripture this morning, if they want to come up and uh, see if they have better luck with music stands than I do, we'll let them come up and kind of move these around and get settled over here. I'll grab one for you. It's not the one I broke. So we've been in Revelation, and uh, we've been hearing all this doom and gloom, all these images of red dragons and beasts from the land and beasts from the sea, and we've been hearing about how John's been using this imagery to tie back to what God's people were actually going through at the time, that they were being oppressed by Rome, that they were being forced to take the mark and worship Caesar in order to even live. And if they didn't, there was persecution or death or jail. And it's been really heavy-duty stuff. It's been not that great of news. But that's all about to change. We're finally getting to that part in Revelation where the tables turn and things are going to happen a little bit different. And so we're going to do something a little different this morning. We're going to have some help um, reading through the scripture this morning, we're actually going to read all the way through chapter 14, and then I'm going to circle back and kind of camp out on, on some of the important chunks in that passage. So, will you guys follow along in your notes, or just watch the screens, whichever is easier for you, but let's read through that together. Okay, Revelation 14. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, 
and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of, of waters and a loud, sorry, the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. <clears throat> they follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as the first fruits to God and the, and the lamb. <clears throat> No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been full strength poured into the cup of its wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angel and of the glam, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patience, endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me with a, was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another, came, another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud. Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had changed charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Thank you. Thank you both for reading. Appreciate it. So now we're going to kind of circle back a little bit and uh, go through some of this stuff. It's a, there's this crazy picture, and it's always so hard to go through stuff in Revelation and then reel it back in 
so that we can take it in bite-sized chunks and understand what it is that we're seeing and what it is that John's saying. And, and the first thing up in here is the 144,000. If you guys want to throw that first slide back up there of uh, four and five. Um, he says, then I looked and then before me was the lamb. He was standing on Mount Zion with him, the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. And the sound I heard was like the harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the psalm except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And those uh, were the ones who did not defile themselves with women for they remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from, above, uh, from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouths, and they were blameless. These 144,000 were set apart by God. They were holy, blameless, no lie found in their mouth. We're getting a picture that these were outstanding followers of God. And there's a lot of speculation about who the 144,000 were. Some people uh, try to make a claim that they're the only ones that get into heaven. And you may have heard somebody knock on your door on a Saturday morning and try to give you a sales pitch of something to that degree. And we'll just stay right up front. Uh, we disagree. We wholeheartedly disagree. Some might believe that they were the Jews, the precursor to the Christian movement. Others might feel like they are the martyrs, all those who followed Jesus that, that died prior to the writing of this passage. And still other people might believe that they're all Christians, all uh, Jew and Gentile throughout history leading up to the writing of this passage. And what, what's important that we don't get hung up on is it, it's not so critical that we nail down who they are so much as that we don't miss what John says, what they are. He says that they are the first fruits redeemed from mankind. They're the beginning of the harvest, reaped from the earth as an offering to the Lord. They are the beginning of God's harvest. Next, we're gonna hear about this new gospel. So let's, let's zip through this next passage here real quick. Um, well, get ahead of myself. So gospel, we remember last week, we talked a little bit about uh, Domitian and, and Marty gave us some awesome context with uh, Domitian and all the advents and the buildings coming up from the land and the sea. And gospel, we have to understand, was a word that was a uh, Greek word that was used by the Greeks and the Romans long before the authors of the Bible adopted it to describe the good news about Jesus and the coming of Christ and the, and the gospel as we know it today. Long before that, it was used by the Romans to describe or to um, go out and send uh, a gospel messenger to proclaim the good news about their coming. Gospel, that word is called the euangelion. It's kind of fun to say. Try it out. Euangelion. Um. So like when Caesar, or Augustus became Caesar, 
he sent out a euangelion, a, a messenger of good news to pronounce that he was Caesar and to tell everybody that he was like the prince of peace and he used these other words to describe himself like God. And we learned last week about Domitian and he had all these advents. Anybody remember how many he had? It was sort of crazy. Anybody remember? 22. He had 22. Gigantic citywide celebrations to say, I'm so awesome. And there were statues and pomp and all this stuff. And prior to every one of those advents, there would be a herald or a a euangelion that would go out to proclaim the good news about Domitian coming and everybody should be so happy, right? And so in this next piece of this vision that John has, we're seeing something really significant. The tide's turning because he says there's an angel that's shouting out about good news in sharp contrast to what the hearers would have been hearing from these other heralds shouting out what they said was good news. Let's look at that, what he says. He says, I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And we gotta be thinking like, finally, like we've been hearing all this doom and gloom. God's people have been under all of this oppression from Rome, from the beasts of the land, from the beast of the sea, pressured to take the mark of the beast to even survive in the culture they were in. They had to either just bend a knee and succumb to it or face persecution or death. And finally, we see this 144,000, this army on the hill with the lamb and an angel crying out that there is eternal good news. God's judgment has come. And we gotta be thinking, I don't know if you're like me, but it's like, finally, this is the cool part of the story. Like God's gonna get even, right? He's gonna come and bring the thunder. These guys are gonna get what they got coming. They should have never messed with our God. And you gotta believe they must have been thinking like, yes, finally, finally. The only problem with all of that is that's not what this judgment is about. This judgment is not about Rome. God's not coming to judge Rome. He's coming to find out who is faithful for the harvest. And when we talk about the coming of Christ and we kind of have this uh, view of how that will happen and it permeates how we live and how we think about other people, it's easy for us to get judgmental and and take on this idea that God is coming and he's gonna get even with our enemies. He's gonna seek revenge on our enemies and when the hour of judgment comes, you'll be sorry you treated me that way. You'll be sorry you didn't believe. And we can have this pious, self-righteous, jerky attitude that is not at all what this judgment is about. And when we misunderstand this judgment, like many people have, when we misunderstand it, then we misapply it. And when we misapply it, we come off as full of ourselves, 
holier than thou. Like we're in and you're not and you're gonna get it. And that's so not what this is about. And, and we become something way different than salt and light in our communities. We become more like Jesus' deterrence. Let's take a look at this next chunk where we actually get to the harvest part. And we're gonna camp out on that for a minute. So let's look at uh, 14 and 16 here. He says, I looked and therefore, or, and uh, there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud. Take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he was seated on the cloud, swung his sickle over the earth and the whole earth was harvested. So we've got the 144,000 in the beginning of this passage who John describes as the first fruits. They're the beginning of the harvest. There was what was brought in first. And then we see Jesus on this white cloud with his sickle and he reaps the whole earth and he brings in the rest of the harvest. In all of Jesus' ministry, when he talks about harvesting, who's the wheat? Who is he harvesting? Not the shaft that gets blown away in the wind, not the weeds that get burned up, but the actual wheat. Who's, who's the wheat? What's he talking about? Who's he talking about? The saints, right? Followers of God. That's the harvest. This isn't about God coming to bring judgment and put the hammer down on anybody that didn't follow him. This isn't about God trying to come and punish the enemies of these people he was writing to or our enemies, this is about God with Jesus reaping to himself all of us who have been faithful saints who believe. And we're not saying that those other people don't get dealt with, but that's not what this harvest right here is about. This harvest is about faithful saints being drawn in to the storehouse. I mean, imagine this imagery. God the Father sends Jesus to gather up all those who have been found faithful and to collect them with your brothers and sisters in Christ throughout generations and to gather us together and bring us home to the storehouse, to, to rally us at the barn with God the Father. to be rescued from this messy, screwed up world and to be redeemed to be in relationship with God for eternity and to hear those words as you come through the, the barn doors, so to speak. To hear those words from God the Father that all of us would love to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, come on in. That's what we're talking about here. And it's, it's so easy for us to get sidetracked and misunderstand this stuff. And it's also easy for us to get so complacent in our faith and not realize, not recognize the significance of what it means for us to actually be faithful believers that will be a part of that harvest. There's so much more to our faith than just 
coming to church on Sunday morning? Is that a part of what we do as believers? We gather together with each other and celebrate and encourage one another and get equipped and get sent out and worship together? Absolutely, that's a part of it. But it's not everything. There's so much more to be a faithful saint than just this. And all too often, especially in our culture, it's really easy to just water our faith way down because our life crowds in so hard and so heavy and our schedules get so full and our plate gets so full that our faith and our faithfulness to what we truly believe and what we say we care most about gets pushed down the priority levels. We can't make it to a home group because we've got too many other things going on. We can't have our kids be a part of youth group because they've got sports going on and if they miss a practice, they won't get to play in the game. Instead of being a mom and a dad who actually love Jesus and believe that their relationship with their son and faithful people following Jesus is top priority in their life and they go have a conversation with a coach and stand up for their, for their kids and their faith, they just roll over Say, yep, you got to be there. You can't, do, you can't miss that. I mean, youth group, you'll get, you can go to church when you're a grown-up or something. It's just crazy how we say that this is so important to us. This is life-altering, life-changing commitment we make to Christ, and we recognize the sacrifice that he made to, to us and for us and how important it is to us, and then over time, how quickly it becomes unimportant in our everyday life. And there is so much to do. Jesus was getting together one day with some of his crew. And you know how Jesus often did. He told stories to help him understand things. And he liked the harvest analogy too because it made sense to the people he was talking to. And so he said this harvest, kind of this little harvest story one time. And he said, you guys have probably all heard this. He told his guys that, um, he said that uh, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the field. And for some of us that don't immediately translate farmer language, I'll translate. Like if Jesus was gonna give that talk to us, he might say it something more like this. Church, do you have any idea how many people there are in Pullman right here in this town, in Colfax, in Uniontown, in Colton. Do you have any idea how many people there are just outside of the walls of this building that are ripe for the picking? There is a great harvest in our community of souls ready to hear about this gospel, this eternal good news. And he'd say, let me encourage you to get out and get in the field and let's get to work. Let's go be a part of God's harvest in this community. So the 144,000 are the first fruits. Their faith and faithfulness was the measuring rod that they were uh, gauged by to be a part of those first fruits. And in Hebrews 11, you guys are all familiar with this probably, it's a kind of a famous passage where we often refer to it as the hall of faith. 
Um, Hall of Fame stuff, sort of a really big deal. It's real popular in every sport, in every genre of activity, there's a Hall of Fame, right? In Canton, Ohio is the, the NFL Hall of Fame. I was over in eastern Montana. I was driving through a little tiny town in North Dakota doing a delivery one day, and I came across a Hall of Fame for cowboys. There's actually the North Dakota Hall, uh, Cowboy Hall of Fame. So you could even have, you could be a Hall of Fame cowboy. Never knew there was such a thing. But let me tell you, if they were in it, they were proud. And that's kind of like this chapter in, in Hebrews 11 is God's Hall of Fame. You get in by your faithfulness. And in that chapter, he talks about guys like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and uh, Rahab, and he says, he goes on in there and says that he could talk about more and more of the saints, but there are so many that he wouldn't have time to cover them all. And he goes on to describe their faith in practical terms, not like they just loved Jesus so much, but he says it was like they were so faithful that they overcame their enemies. They, they had justice. They righted wrongs. They won wars. These were faith in hardcore action guys. He said that they faced persecution and were threatened and would not turn and bow a knee to a ruler or a king or a Caesar because they knew what awaited them in heaven was far greater than anything anybody could offer them on earth. He said that they were tortured, put in chains, flogged, imprisoned, he said that they were killed in horrific ways, sawn in two, executed for what they believe. It takes great faith and resolve in your trust in Christ and this gospel we know about to not waver in a time like that. Now I'll tell you, we live in a whole different world than died by the sword kind of world, right? We're probably not gonna get struck down with a sword because we're Christians in Pullman. But what I do wonder is how willing are we to die to ourselves for our faith? How willing are we to put aside our wants, our desires, our ambitions, our things that we want? How willing are we to set those aside and make following Christ and loving him and loving other people a priority over ourselves and what we want? I'll kind of give you some ideas like what that might look like. Would we be able to follow in Abraham's footsteps? Would we be able to stop where we're at in life right now if we felt a call from God to go somewhere? Would we be able to sell out, do whatever it takes to get rid of whatever we had to get rid of and go because we knew and trusted that if we were faithful to go where God was leading us, it would be better for us and better for the kingdom than anything we could do if we stayed here on our own? Do we have that kind of faith? Would we be able to invite a single mom and her kids 
into our house and rearrange our life and our spare bedroom so that we could stuff somebody in the house that needed a place to stay. Because we have faith that God could work through our generosity and our kindness and our patience and our love to do something supernatural through that connection and that opportunity. Do we have that kind of faith? Do we have the kind of faith that would reach out to a coworker who we really don't know that well? We've seen them in the hall or we've passed them at a meeting and we notice that they're maybe crying or they read something on their phone and you can tell it just really shook them up. Do we have the kind of faith that we believe what we believe so strongly and it's so important, this gospel that we have, that we would walk over and put a hand on that person and just say, hey, are you okay? Seems like you're struggling and it's not my business and I'm not here to get in your business, but if I could pray for you, if there's anything you need, I'm a listening ear. Irregardless of what they would think about us or how awkward it would be or if we would feel weird, like do we have that kind of faith? I'll tell you guys a cool story. Um, Here's the coolest part about this story is that my wife, it's about my wife, um, she's going to be here uh, in Pullman Wednesday. Can I please get an amen? Whew. Longest three weeks of my life, right? Try moving into a house. She's asking me if I got stuff put away. We were, I was FaceTiming her and showing her the house and stuff. She hasn't even been there yet, right? So I'm showing her. She's like, you still haven't got that put away? Still? I'm like, babe, I, I, whatever I do, you'll just move it anyway, right? So I am being more efficient by leaving things where they need to be, right? So, my wife is awesome, and years ago, she was in a Bible study. We lived up in Coeur d'Alene, um, actually out in Rathdrum, and she was in this Bible study, and in this study, she had met this gal, and uh, they kind of got to have like a little budding friendship, and she could, you know, it was kind of a mentor-type relationship, and this gal was really struggling in lots of ways, and her husband had some kind of abusive issues and he was battling different problems in his life and they had two little boys that were just little guys at the time like I don't know three and five maybe or smaller I don't know little and through their relationship my wife came to find out that they were getting evicted from their apartment and they didn't have anywhere to go and they have they're not from the area they didn't have any other family around there and my wife comes home and uh, she says, I, I got to tell you, um, you know, so-and-so from the group, and I've told you some of their story and stuff, and we've prayed about them, yeah. Um, I think we need to help them out. And I'm thinking, okay, like, do they need us to pay rent or something? You know, I'm like, well, you know, I'll be helpful. And she's like, no, that's, we're past that. They need a place to live. And she's like, we've got the room, and we could rearrange kids. We have five kids. And at that time, all of our kids were like fifth grade and under back then. And uh, she's like, we could rearrange stuff. All the boys, we have four boys. All the boys could go in one room, then da 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 all that stuff. I'm like feeling really convicted. Like here's my wife just like living out what it looks like to, to love somebody. And I'm going to second guess. So I'm like, you know what? Yeah, let's, let's do it. So we rearrange everything. We get them in our house. It was shortly after Christmas. Sometime in January, I don't remember exactly, but um, all of our kids had got Christmas money. 
and they were learning about tithe and saving and stuff. So they had all these mason jars. Five kids, it's a lot of mason jars full of money, right? So we've got all their money and their names and they decorated their jars and they were all excited about their toy, you know, their fun money jar, when they could go spend it and all this stuff. And meanwhile, we moved this family in with us and it was ups and downs, there was good parts, there was bad parts. And one day we come home after a few weeks in and the guy is gone and so is all of the jars of Christmas money. Now you wanna talk about teachable moment to sit down with your kids and go, we still believe that loving them was the right thing to do. We still believe that God's gonna work through what we've been doing here in spite of him being a turd of a guy. That's him and his stuff, but there's something else here, so what, could, what would it look like? And so we walked through that with our kids and we talked with them about sacrifices we make for our faith. And it was a real practical application that was not that fun for him or us. And now, that gal to this day is walking with Jesus. She helps with worship. She's involved at her church. She loves the Lord. I don't know about her littler guy because I kind of lost track of him, but her older son I've stayed in touch with. And he's on fire for Jesus. And dad's exit stage left. Who knows what happened to him or where he went. I have no idea. But God works through, like we've been learning through this passage and through uh, out Revelation, God works through faithful people to do his business here on earth. At the end of that passage in Hebrews, um, we'll throw it up here real quick so we can look at it because it says something really cool at the very end of it. Um, it says that they were all commended for their faith and yet uh, none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Now when you're reading that whole chapter and you come across that at the very end and it, it sort of doesn't, it's hard to like wrap your brain around what exactly he's talking about. And what he's talking about there is that their faith, the Hall of Famer guys that made the list, that got in because they were faithful to God, they're on the wall in God's Hall of Fame, their faith is actually not complete. It's not made perfect until the whole harvest is reaped. No farmer would say, hey, I went out and did the first cutting, but 95% of the field's still out there. We're done. We got her. We got the first part done. No, the harvest is not complete until the whole field is reaped. And so you and I get to be a part of making their faith complete together. We get to stand on the shoulders of those great men and women that came before us. Because of their faith, we get to see and understand and know about the God who sent his son to save us. We have a picture of God and an understanding of God, God's word in our hands because of their faithfulness. And so our question is, myself included, do we have the kind of faith that is gonna help our kids and our grandkids see more of God than we ever did? We always hear people 
Uh, it's kind of an American thing, talking about how we're going to work really hard so that we can get ahead because we don't want our kids to have to struggle as hard as we did. Noble, not unvaluable effort, but do we talk about and care about as much that our kids will know more about God as they start out in life than we ever did? Are we gonna just keep spitting out generation after generation of people that have no knowledge of God, that have no understanding of what it means to be a Christian, that have no idea of what it means to, to have faith in tough situations and stay the course, and then if they do wanna to come to a relationship with Christ, they start at square one. And we just keep starting people over at zero. Reboot, reboot, re and we wonder why the church just shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks, and the world just comes in from every angle. Or are our kids gonna know more about Christ because of the faith that we've had and how we've invested in them and modeled to them throughout our lives? And not just your kids, you may be a single person, maybe you don't have kids, you may be uh, not having kids, you may be in a different season. But we're talking about like your spiritual family like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, people that you love and invest in and care about, will they have a bigger picture of who God is because of our faith? What we really need, and I say we like I'm including me. I'm not, I'm not cracking the whip on anybody. I'm just, I'm just encouraging all of us. What, what is so important is that we are a faithful group of Christians. Instead of worrying what else is going on there and is God going to get even or are they going to get theirs or are they going to get theirs, we need to not worry about that and worry about staying faithful to Jesus first off and foremost. Staying faithful to learning how to love and nourish and feed on God's word and care about it. Staying faithful to our marriages. Staying faithful to our parents. Staying faithful to our families. Staying faithful to our church family having those things be of top priority in our everyday life. And other things get judged against those. If there's room apart from this stuff that takes up the, mo the bulk of my time and energy and effort is how I stay faithful to the Lord and to his word and to my marriage and to my friends and to my church. And if I have time left for this thing or that thing, we'll see but not fill in your lives with everything else and there's no room left to actually live out what it looks like to be a Christian. The reality is this, that the lamb will come, there will be a harvest, there will be judgment, not the judgment we often think about, but a judgment of who is found faithful. And here's what I want you to get. I just want to kind of wrap up and we'll start with communion in a second. But I, I want you to have this image in your head for us here as a church in Pullman. I want you to imagine the day of the harvest. I don't know if that's tomorrow or 10,000 years from now. A lot of guys tried to ask Jesus and he said, it does not for you to know. Quit worrying about it. Just get back to living out your faith. That's what he says to me. I want you to imagine when the time comes and there's that great harvest and we've got Jesus on the cloud with the sickle and he's gonna reap and gather together all of the believers 
who have been found faithful, I want you to imagine what it would look like if there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people from the Palouse that were a part of that harvest because of your faithfulness right here in this room. That there would be people that are being brought home to the storehouse to be with God the Father because of our faithfulness to live out our faith right now at this time and this place in our lives. I feel like I'm given the heavy duty. It feels sort of serious, but it's actually sort of cool. It's a pretty amazing thing to be a part of God's harvest and to be brought home to the storehouse. It's, it's not heavy duty, it's like celebration. Um, the servers are gonna go ahead and come on up and start passing out communion. And if you're new here and you haven't been here before, when we do communion, we have what we call an open table. And all that means is that if you love Jesus, then we want you to celebrate communion with us. And so if everybody, when they're passing them out, just hang on to the elements, and then here in a second, we'll take uh, communion together as a family, okay? While they're doing that, I, I have a, like a bullet point that keeps coming up in my head that I want to be in your head. I, I want it on your fridge, I want it on your car dash, on your desk next to your computer screen, here, so like write this down, and if you need to write it in your words where it makes sense for you, then do that. But I want, you to, I want you to get this. If we get nothing else out of this passage, get this. God's judgment is not a punishment. This judgment that we keep hearing about and that we get this wrong idea about, God's judgment is not a punishment, it's a Christian's greatest reward. It's a Christian's greatest reward. And if we could think about that and challenge ourselves and encourage each other, do we live like there is a great reward. Let's go through some uh, other takeaway points up here. Um, these are just some other things while they're passing out communion. Let's take a look at these real quick and um, talk about them just a minute. Uh, Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. I know it seems like sometimes that the world is winning and you feel like we're kind of fighting an uphill battle. Maybe you're in a spot where you've got stuff going on in your life because of what other people are doing to you. And I want to encourage you like John encouraged those that were in tough situations to stay the course, to endure. Be faithful to Jesus. God will take care of the rest. We focus on being faithful. Let's look at the next one. Our faith stands on the shoulders of faithful men and women. Uh, will our children's faith stand, stand taller than ours? Think about what a blessing, an awesome blessing it would be that we have generations of kids coming out of this congregation 
that start out their life knowing about God and don't have to figure it out when they're 30 or when they have their first kid and they think it might be important to go to church and they're starting over from scratch. Let's be those kind of people. Let's look at this last one. Faithfulness focuses on faithfulness, not fairness. Faithfulness focuses on uh, faithfulness. We don't want fair. If we wanted fair, if God was fair, we would all be in big trouble. Don't slide down the slippery slope of worrying about getting even with our enemies or is God gonna do something about this or this isn't fair. Don't sink into that muck. Pull yourself up on the shirt tails of Jesus and have faith in him that he will ride you through any storm. That's why we get to celebrate every morning Jesus' faithfulness to the Father's plan. We get to come together with communion and remember that Jesus was faithful unto death so that we could have forgiveness of our sins and a relationship with God the Father and a helper in the Holy Spirit to come and be with us. And Jesus sat together with his guys and he broke bread and he blessed it and he told them to take this and eat that this was his body and let's take the bread. And he took the cup and he blessed it and he told them that this is the cup of the new covenant. Let's drink it together. God, we just, we just pray, Lord, that you would spur us along in our faithfulness that, Lord, that we would be a church full of people who put you first who love you more than we love our own plans and love our own selves, and that, God, we would stick out like a sore thumb in Pullman, that we would be radically different in how we prioritize our lives and how we love and care about other people, and that the kingdom would be different. Lord, I pray that there are people in the harvest because of the faith of the people in this room, Lord. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.